0: Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger.
1: So welcome again to Sleep Talk. This is episode 47 of the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome again, Moira.
0: Hello, Dave. Hello, audience.
1: So this episode, we're going to talk about tracking sleep, how you measure sleep in a longitudinal sense, sort of outside of a sort of hospital or laboratory setting. And we'll get into that with our guest, uh, James Slater. What's
0: been happening in sleep, Moira? Wow, pretty much really. He just just got back from the, the, the conference. Um, and wasn't it fantastic? Yeah, it was
1: yeah. really fantastic. But I'm ready for a rest
0: now. Yeah, <laughs> particularly you've been via... <laughs> India to Sydney, I just did the Sydney only yeah it's been wonderful so um, uh, apart from that yeah nothing really That's consumed us hasn't
1: it? Yeah lots of really great stuff from the conference and if you want to look on socials you'll be able to catch some of the things that people are tweeting out and sending out from the conference hashtag SDU2019 So the theme for this month's podcast is tracking sleep. A few years ago, Moira, everyone was wearing an activity tracker. I had my activity tracker I was wearing to Absolutely. understand how these things worked.
0: Even I had one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and now, nothing?
0: No, no, I'm not both of us aren't wearing one right now. <laughs> yeah.
1: Some of the tech podcasts I listen to and some of the other fitness podcasts that I listen to, 2019 activity trackers are out, what's in is smart watches, mm. so things that, Measure both movement, but extra stuff. Yeah. Heart rate, more information.
0: More accurate, I'd say.
1: Oh, I think. Is it that, is that the word? You know, if we think about the basic science, an algorithm, if you're trying to pick sleep, that's got heart rate plus movement, should do much better than one that's got movement. Just al- movement, yeah. Alone. Mm. And yeah, like all of these things, the data sometimes is, is lacking a bit behind. So we'll get into some of the different devices that are used to track sleep as well as, you know, when it might be helpful. From your point of view, Moira, when do you think it might be a helpful thing to be measuring sleep?
0: <laughs> to be quite frank, you're talking to the wrong gal because I see a skewed sample of people who have probably over-monitored their sleep. And you know, you've seen it, they've got a wad of pen and paper diaries or output now from a, some kind of device. I can't see that many examples in my in the clinical world. I think it's a generally good thing. I think people who are just generally health generally interested in their health and generally interested in just what their sleep's doing. Absolutely. Knock yourself out, do it. Fantastic be because it probably just makes people really appreciate and value and respect sleep. I think that's a wonderful thing. It's just my little you know, rain on your parade, Um, just a skewed sample of, you know, people with generally, I've seen people with quite severe insomnia. That is not the type. I don't think monitoring their sleep is what we need to do. We need to, I just need to always, that's to say, get away from even thinking about it, let alone monitoring it.
1: Yeah, and that's that term, orthosomnia. That's right, which we've covered before. Which we have actually covered before. So, yeah, nice summary of that. In some respects, the thing I quite like is as a clinician, I'd love to be able to have a tool that could just unobtrusively, quietly in the background, be measuring somebody's sleep over a long period of time and almost like they don't get to see the data, but yeah, I get absolutely. to see the data. as a, as a
0: diagnostic tool so,
1: so the, for yeah. you. <laughs> but, and yeah, helping to understand just their behaviour around sleep and mm. you know what happens in terms of their sleep weight cycle. We'll talk to our guest, James, and see whether those tools do exist and can we strike that balance between getting too caught up in the measurement but still getting some really good data. Thanks a lot for helping us out with the podcast, James. You're welcome. Good to be with you. So you helped us out back episode 15, so February 2017, almost coming up for three years ago, and then we talked a bit about sleep trackers. I've changed the title a bit this time to Tracking Sleep because there's a few more devices and different ways of tracking sleep what's changed in your life what have you been doing since we last spoke nearly three years ago
2: i took a stint in perth for about 18 months and slowed down my research work for parenting i have started to pace all that back to normal and i've changed my work commitments i'm now working as a scientist at children's and university of melbourne here and how's your phd going It moves ever so slowly like it should. So one of the things that's missing for me and what I really need in clinical practice is
1: something that could just accurately measure sleep at home, unobtrusively,
2: that was cheap. So what's the answer? What's that device? Sleep log. You read old piece of paper, yeah it's underappreciated, it works pretty well, you can make it electronic in a way, and you can use it to graph, although you don't get the same circadian trends that you'd get with actigraphy. It doesn't give you the same kind of picture, the same graphs, but it can give you a lot of information because it's repeated overnights. You can see what changes with it, you can collect other data with it at the same time. It's cheap and I think most clinicians can handle setting it up in their practice, but it doesn't give all of the things that you're after. I agree with you,
1: actually, I think that's really true. I love the visual sleep diaries for longitudinal sleep measurement, because it's both from my point of view, I can see patterns, I'm pretty simple, I can see patterns, but from a patient point of view, it gives that feedback as well, so they can look at it. That's one of my concerns with the consensus sleep diary.
2: It's almost too tabulated and too numerical that you can't visually see those patterns. The consensus sleep diary, it's great for being standardised and for being numerical. It's easy to write down the number people have generally got a digital clock, that's the main thing that they need to do, but that's absolutely the weakness of it, is that it's less convenient, you're not just completing a box. And it doesn't explicitly state that you could go and modify it and here's how you should do it, but you can. Uh, I think one of the easy ways to do it is you can add to it something like pluses, minuses, smiley faces, frowns. If you wanna keep it really simple, but let a patient write onto the diary good, bad, the ugly of their sleep if you want to get the graph out of it you can put it into a spreadsheet and get the night's graph out that way but then you need someone in your clinic doing that as well another way around that is to use an app it's not great to encourage patients to think about both their sleep and their phone at the same time or to rely on their phone for doing a sleep diary yeah and for me in clinical practice that more visual sleep diary does give me
1: what I need And I certainly get that researchers are going to want more numerical data, so that's where the consensus sleep diary fits a bit better. What about if you're a researcher and then you're trying to look at sleep across populations? What are some of the things they could use to do that?
2: There's no shortage of ideas now on ways to do it. There have been a lot of innovative papers recently on new ways that have come out to measure sleep, or something that relates to it, even looking at Twitter use and when people are not tweeting. It doesn't tell us that everyone's asleep, but the decline in Twitter feeds overnight suggests that people are generally asleep at that time. And that offset and onset of Twitter posts overnight in the morning it does give us an indication in a region or for populations subpopulations gender sex age it tells us a little bit about variation between those groups so actigraphy is the tool you've been really working on over a number of years just revise for us what is actigraphy it's a measure of movement and we use that measure of movement to infer whether someone is asleep or awake because if they're awake they would be moving if they're asleep They shouldn't be moving. The data's processed by some algorithms. And then we get some calculations to tell us how good their sleep is, some measures of quality and quantity like sleep efficiency, total sleep time, the average time that people went to bed, that sort of thing.
1: So the simpler consumer devices that uh, track activity, 2016 devices without heart rate, had accelerometers in them. How do they differ from actigraphy?
2: Well, you don't know entirely. We have some idea of how they work. We know what the marketing says about these devices, what hardware is in there. We don't know what the software is doing with all of those measures, or even if heart rate, movement. We know that those sensors are in there. We don't quite know how they're used. We might have some of the movement data in there and all of the heart rate data in there, but that doesn't mean that it's processed in the same way that more traditional medical or research actigraphy device would process the data. It might collect it less often, so it might take a sample of movement every second or every 60 seconds, and that's quite a big difference if it's cutting that out. The more conventional devices will get us to the calculations and the, the variables, sleep efficiency, sleep time, time into bed, those sorts of things. But what happens for the consumer devices before we get to those numbers, we don't quite know. We know that there is software that is doing some processing, but it's a black box as to how it achieves that. And that's one of the reasons as a
1: clinician, I'm not trying to run my own actigraphy service. I think I've learnt from you and others in the field that being able to tweak those variables makes such a difference to the numbers that come out of the device, that it really is a whole science and um, specialty in itself.
2: I think it's worth pointing out as well even for the conventional devices that have been used for a really long time a lot of them have now got automated features and it's important to know when you're using actigraphy what the automatic feature is doing so if it's marking all of the bedtimes and wait times for you that might seem really convenient but that's not something that is comparable across devices that's something that that company has developed specifically for that device both polysomnography a sleep
1: study and actigraphy do have those differences the short-term high fidelity of the sleep study and the longer-term lower fidelity of actigraphy but how do they actually compare
2: if you compare them head to head actigraphy performs reasonably well at detecting sleep it's not as good at accurately picking up when someone is awake if they've had an awakening overnight it's especially not good at picking up really brief awakenings like when someone rolls over in bed they might lean over, check their phone, and then fall back to sleep really quickly. The kind of awakening that tends to get processed out by actigraphy because of the way the algorithms work. The algorithms make the data and the measures more accurate by smoothing out these little differences. Actigraphy is not great at measuring how long it takes someone to get to sleep. A bit of that can be because conventional actigraphy requires us to get a time into bed from the person that it's measuring. And that means that their subjective perception of time is involved in what we usually think of as an objective measure.
1: And so actigraphy, which we talk, talked about, together with some of the older consumer trackers measured movement alone. So now in 2019, in the consumer space, people have moved on to smartwatches. Even the wrist based activity trackers have heart rate as one of their variables. Can that improve the performance of tracking sleep in the longer term? Not by very much.
2: There's been quite, um, quite a few attempts over the years to include that data with conventional actigraphy, not just the, the newer smartwatches. And it seems to improve the accuracy a little bit, but it's still not the same as polysomnography. Um, the agreement rates aren't really enough for us to accept it as a measure that we'd want to use in a clinical setting. Certainly in the consumer space,
1: there's then an attempt to put a facade, if you like, of, okay, we can now pick sleep stages and report light sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep. There's not been the temptation in the actigraphy space to add on heart rate and then try and differentiate not just
2: sleep and wake, but other types of sleep. It's been tried since the early 1990s, I think. We can get some of the sleep stages to line up at least by percent, maybe even by minutes of it as well but it just we can't get there and that was doing it by movement alone as well keep in mind with hardware that was worse than what we've got now so it was kind of impressive that we might have been able to get some agreement for non-REM or REM uh, or wakefulness overnight but not all of them together and we kind of need all of them together for it to be really clinically useful adding on heart rate has improved it again but like the measures of just sleep and wake alone it's not quite enough. We can make these things a little bit better, but we do have a bit of a cost of simplicity there and complexity in processing. We have not yet reached the point where actigraphy can measure sleep stages. There is no mobile phone application that can accurately measure sleep.
1: You mean all those apps that I've got on my phone that claim they can tell me all about my sleep?
2: Actually, that's maybe a little bit unfair. There is no mobile phone application that has proven its ability to accurately measure sleep. Of all of the studies so far that have looked at the mobile phone applications, there have been none that have succeeded at accurately measuring sleep. And some of them have more biological plausibility than others. The
1: ones where your smartphone's on the bedside table, far distant, and nothing is attached to you, and then it's going to tell you about sleep stages. I'm like, yeah, I'm quite curious how physiologically that's actually going to happen.
2: It's... Not that much distance, but it's enough distance for it to really matter because an accelerometer, it can pick up movement. They're quite sensitive at it. There's a lot of movement on a bed overnight, not just when you're awake. It needs to be able to tell the difference, and they generally aren't great at telling the difference, but for them to also tell the difference between your light and your deep sleep, no, they
1: can't do that. Right. So the, so the message is in 2019, my high-tech solution is my pen and
2: paper and a visual sleep diary. Is that is that what the answer is yes there are also apps that will do the sleep diary for you but preferably do it by paper if you can and then if people are looking for research that's when they should be working with you to get good quality actigraphy data that they can really understand there are plenty of people out there doing exactly the same it's slowly improving but it's one of those things it's like polysomnography there are many little little changes to it every year every five years, but fundamentally what we're doing now is what we were doing in nineteen eighty nine. And then you talked up front a bit about use of big data, so looking at sleep patterns across
1: populations. So Twitter was one example. Have there been other examples of that type of data?
2: There's a lot of options for looking at mobile phone usage. Mobile phones record when they're locked, unlocked, when a mobile network is activated, when they're on a home Wi Fi or not. These kind of things, even the ones that I've just mentioned there, that would tell us if someone is at home. There's a lot of other sensors in them as well. They have light measures. They can detect magnetic fields, movement. A lot of this data isn't used day-to-day by us at all, or at least not in ways that we're aware of. Researchers can get participants to agree to having that data unlocked to the researchers for the researchers to then compare. They might be able to piece a few things together by looking at what happens to occur together, like when people say they're in bed and when they're asleep. It might be that they're at home, they're on their home Wi-Fi network, they might be smart enough to put their phone onto flight mode, they might be smart enough to turn their phone off completely, the phone might be locked. Generally when people have got their phone unlocked, it probably is being used by them, they're probably awake.
1: Well, in 2019, pretty much every minute our eyes are open, we have phone in hand, utilising data, sending signals to and from the cloud that could you know, signal to a third party our biological state or the activity state that we're in.
2: It's impressive as well that we're using our phones more in total, but we're using them for shorter bursts as well. So more of us are going to our phones and, and grabbing them and using them for a shorter time. And it's interesting looking at some of the data... Um, that we shared before we did the interview, a couple of the really nice
1: publications looking at these big data applications are from mathematics groups, so non-sleep groups. And I think we'll learn a lot as just people with a different perspective come into the sleep space and start to look at these bigger picture questions about sleep and wake behaviour patterns across populations that they can infer by looking at all this hidden data that we don't normally access.
2: Absolutely. Mathematics and engineering have a good history of collaborating with sleep medicine and sleep research, but usually that's been driven, I think, a little bit more by the sleep field or to share their expertise and what they can bring for mutual benefit. Maths and engineering groups are great at processing enormous amounts of data. If you think about mobile phones, they don't keep detailed records of when we lock and unlock them every time of day that that is, the mobile network usage, that sort of thing. But that kind of data can be collected for a while. If we take that from many thousands of people, that's a lot of data. We've got the ability to store that. Even in a hospital or a university, we might have the ability to store that. But to actually make sense of that or to do something with it, we really need people with the expertise in it. We're starting to see interesting papers on that. Machine learning, pattern recognition, these are things that I think are a little bit beyond what mostly researchers would have traditionally done. But when we work with people who have got the strength and the expertise in it, we're finding some really innovative studies where they're looking at a question that has never been considered before or they're using a method or a measure that has never been attempted.
1: So a good example of that is a article from uh, University of Michigan, first author Olivia Walsh. And Olivia's been a previous guest on the podcast talking about her app, Uh, In train which educates people on how to use light exposure for jet lag. But this particular paper, um, the exciting thing for me is that they were using the Apple Watch but had access to some of the APIs and a way of actually getting some of the data out of the Apple Watch rather than it being a closed black box. And that's an exciting way forward for me. Consumers are wearing very smart devices, not just phones, like we've been talked about, but really smart devices like a, like a smartwatch. But it's been a closed box. But being able to actually access the raw data and use algorithms to better tweak what that raw data shows us, I think, a way forward. And it's a
2: really nice paper. Smartwatches have been around for a few years now. Sleep-wise, we still know little about them. We don't know enough about them. There are some claims that go with them that they can measure sleep and the findings for that so far are that they're a little bit weak on picking up wake, just like actigraphy would be traditionally, but they're pretty good at picking up when someone goes to sleep. And interestingly, they are reasonably accurate at picking up when someone goes to bed. And clinically, that's a pretty important time if we can get someone to go to bed just a tiny bit earlier and that they can handle that. They can fit that with everything else that's on them in their life. Great. Thanks for that
1: really interesting discussion, James. It seems for me as a clinician, I'll still stick with my pen and paper and sleep logs because, like you say, I find them really helpful. But for researchers, there's a whole world of opportunity and think about collaborating more broadly and with other groups and think about what large data sets may be able to be used to be able to track sleep within populations.
2: Absolutely. There's literally endless opportunity with the amount of data that already exists. But there's so much more when you think about the kind of changes that a mobile phone would have brought to society. But that in thirty years that can change entirely. So,
1: myra, now we've talked all about how you can track sleep and how you can monitor it and get all this data about sleep. What's your clinical tip?
0: Not surprisingly, you know that my clinical tip is just to for all of us listening. Just to be mindful of what the data is really telling you and how important is it really. I think that the most important thing is someone's subjective feelings of well-being and just their perceptions, because perceptions everything anyway. This objective data, yes, obviously really important, particularly you need objective data in clinical research settings just never fall away from the idea or the, the notion that too much monitoring of one's sleep can increase one's anxiety and therefore the arousal and therefore inadvertently make all the sleep really much harder to obtain and less satisfying. So this is just a word of cautionary, a cautionary tale there. Dave, what's your pick of the month?
1: Well, keeping in time with tracking sleep or on that theme... There's a website I've been playing with called sleepingtime.org. And if you put in somebody's Twitter handle into that website, it'll predict their sleep-wake cycle based on what? the most recent thousand tweets. So you've got to really? Be a, you've got to be a prolific tweeter. Oh, like
0: the timing of the tweets? Yeah. yeah.
1: So it looks at the timing of the last thousand right. tweets and then looks at predicting someone's sleep-wake cycle. <laughs> so I put in my Twitter handle... And it said, it predicted that I went to sleep at 10 p.m. and woke up at 4 a.m.
0: Is that pretty accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I know it's all wonderful science. It's great. But, I mean, I'm not that overwhelmed by that. I think, well, don't people know <laughs> the prediction? You know what time you go to bed and what time oh, yeah, you get it's up. it's the and...
1: perfect stalking tool in, in the 21st century. <laughs> so, exactly. So I did put in at Real Donald Trump.
0: Uh, oh, ah, yeah. not much sleep at all, I'd say. Right, it predicted
1: mm. 11 pm till 5 am, but I thought that was probably mm, a, bit, that's a, bit generous. a bit generous. I'd yeah. say
0: well after midnight and awake at before four. <laughs> that's I'm my right. prediction.
1: <laughs> so, what about for you, Moira?
0: Um, well, I just there was a really interesting report that came out just last weekend, actually, a uh, Price Coopers Health Research Institute report. I didn't know they had their own Health Research Institute, but it was just such a, it was just so heartening, particularly from you know my, with the Sleep Health Foundation perspective that we didn't have to pay for this research. But it was a very large scale research. They, they surveyed eight thousand people across the world, including a thousand Australians, and not surprisingly, the, the biggest problem the, the thing that worldwide that people cite as a barrier to their health and to their well-being and in particular their mental health is lack of sleep, sleep deprivation. So that's just a, a nice, like, compelling, massive body of research that's going to get widespread. It's got stacks and stacks of coverage, mm-hmm. which is just you know nice, nice to, um, just from my perspective, all of us that work in the sleep world obviously want to promote better sleep for people. We understand the importance of sleep for health. We want to improve outcomes for people. So 35% of the respondents cited sleep deprivation as their top concern in the whole world. Second was 26% of people cited mental health worries as their as their biggest concern into health. Worldwide data that's reflected here has very similar numbers um, in Australia.
1: Yeah, I saw that, and I really, really like that too. And it fits so nicely with the uh, surveys that Sleep Health Foundation's mm. done back in twenty twelve and twenty sixteen. Mm. It's pretty consistent. Very with consistent,
0: with that. which is nice. So, what's coming up, Dave?
1: So, look at in upcoming episodes. We're going to interview Till Ronenberg. I'm really excited about that. He's written a really awesome review about the impact of daylight saving and socially applied sort of time changes to sleep and health in large populations. Yeah, still working on cannabis and sleep and some other topics. So yeah, Mm. lots of topics to come.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like us, give us a review on Apple Podcasts.
1: We had a couple of really nice reviews in September, so thank you very much for people yeah, who reviewed us and a great comment uh, via Podbean. So there's lots of different ways you can listen through most of the different podcast distribution channels.
0: Don't forget to send suggestions too. Email um, podcast at Thanks a lot. Thank you. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical medical condition.